Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary in the Hendricks Center there. And our topic today is sociology, and our guest is... Sam Perry, Samuel Perry, who is Associate Professor for Sociology at the University of Oklahoma, so uh, Sooner, and uh, um, he's also affiliated with the Religious Studies Department there. How long have you been uh, at, at OU? Uh, this is my eighth year at, uh, at OU. Uh, this was my first, first uh, academic job out of grad school. Okay, and where did you do your grad work? So I went to Dallas Theological Seminary from 2005 to 2008, and uh, then I went to the University of Chicago, uh, okay. where, I, where I finished with my master's and PhD. Oh wow, good old Chicago, where the weathers are, are where the weather in the winter is really exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm at Wheaton up three times a year for board meetings, and uh, when we come to the February board visits, and my wife says, "What should I? What should I pack?" I go single digits. <laughs> especially around this time of year it's pretty exactly bitter, right that's, so that's uh, anyway we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us uh, and we're going to walk into the area of sociology and and how it can help us kind of see and understand the world around us sure um so let me start with what is a traditional question for anyone who's a first-time guest and that is uh what's a nice guy like you doing in a gig like this how did you get how did you get, I guess, from seminary to sociology? It actually has a rhetorical ring to it. Yeah. So, um, you know, actually, actually it was uh, uh, the seminary's influence. I, I was not a strong student uh, in an undergrad. I was a B, a B student, and I, I wasn't a Christian before I came into college. Uh, went to the only college that would accept me, became a Christian in college, and, and was discipled through that. And only through that uh, became a halfway decent student. I uh, got into seminary and realized that I actually really uh, enjoy academics. I love research and I love writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like many, I also saw, I, I saw that, and this is part of seminary's role is, to, is discerning calling and figuring out what you're supposed to do and how you're, how you can contribute. And uh, I quickly discovered that I, I think I'm too much of an introvert and not, uh, I don't have the right skill set or personality to be a vocational pastor. Um, but I felt like being a, a professor is something that suited me really well. And, and, and by that, all of that, I mean, I think the teaching, the research and the writing and the academic life. Um, but I actually got some really good advice from some seminary professors. They out lunch uh, and they said, I don't know if I should say it. So they said uh, uh, I was I was academic New Testament at the time and, and uh, I was tracking towards some, you know, Ph.D. in Edinburgh or something like that, as, as is often the case. And they said, whatever you do, don't, don't do a PhD in, in something like, you know, New Testament studies or whatever, because they were they were they were they were cautiously saying, like, hey, the, the jobs are really slim. It's really hard to get a, a job. True enough. Thing. And they, so they said, you should consider other fields and disciplines that you might find interesting that you could go and, and, and pursue. And I thought about my uh the, the fields that I loved in undergrad, and one of those happened to be sociology. And I was fortunate uh, to get into a, a, a really strong PhD program at the University of Chicago, where I could study the things that I, I wanted to. And Chicago has a reputation of 
of just kind of letting you do your own thing. The, the mentorship is not particularly like intrusive and involved in that way. You just, they just kind of give you a stipend and say, you know, come back when you've done some sociology. So I was able to study what I wanted to and work on my own. Um, and yeah, so, uh, the university of Oklahoma, I was fortunate to, to, to get a, uh, to land a solid job out of graduate school. And I've been here, uh, ever since. Uh, and, uh, and that's really great for us because we have family in Texas and we're, you know, native, native Texans. And so we're close to, I think, you know, kind of culture and restaurants that we are familiar with and, and family and those things. Fair enough. So, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your time at Chicago. Um, cause I'm interested, did, you know, American programs vary. Some of them are just dissertation. Some of them are a little bit of classroom work and dissertation. So what kind of a program did Chicago have? So Chicago, um, uh, was was really well suited to somebody like me who was who knew what they wanted to do and wanted to get out quickly. Uh, they do have classroom uh, requirements. It's not like a UK PhD. It, it is it is there, but there was maybe like a year or so of like class requirements. Um, after that, it was basically you take some comprehensive examinations, uh, which you can do in a number of formats, and then you just focus on the dissertation. Uh, so I was able to to be pretty direct and focused and and finish quickly. Uh, which was which was good, and and the University of Chicago, I think, was uh, a really academically and intellectually, it was a really intoxicating kind of environment. It's very prestigious, yeah, but it's the also Chicago just, area are, is terrific. People are just very driven by big questions, and that's kind yeah. of what their currency, right? Like they have a reputation of they are they are they are people who are not impressed easily with 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 a lot of flash and show. They really want to dig in and argue, and so I, I think that was a lot of fun to be a part of. Interesting. So what did you work on there? So I actually, you know, all, all research, this is all social scientists uh, and, and end up writing about things that are relevant to them personally. Uh, and, and this one was no different. Uh, I got to the University of Chicago and I was fascinated by uh, what was called at the time the evangelical orphan care movement. And this is uh, uh, Christians involved in adoption and orphan care and foster care. Hmm. Uh, and I was curious uh uh, the, the the workings of this movement, how it got off the ground, and what what had the results been like, and and how was it, whether it was succeeding, whether it was not succeeding, what are the reasons for those things, and so uh, my dissertation was uh, uh, on the evangelical orphan care movement, and which ended up being my first book, Growing God's Family, and so it's it's about um, about the challenges that evangelical movements face when they try to get involved in kind of social activism. Uh, and uh, ways that goes well in ways that uh, they end up kind of uh, undercutting their own efforts, unfortunately. So was that local orphan care or did it involve, you know, traveling overseas um, to care for kids? What, what kind of or all of that? What kind of organizations were you looking at? Yeah, so I, I looked at the primary uh, organizations leading this movement. So Christian Alliance for Orphans and their leadership. And, and this involved uh, a lot of quantitative analysis, but it involved interviews with several hundred uh, leaders and families, everybody from Russell Moore and people who are writing books about adoption and, and, and foster care to people who are leading whole organizations and ministries about this to try to pick their brains about like how people had been mobilized, uh, what was working, what was not, what are the challenges, um, looking at and, and comparing their accounts to the actual numbers of you know how many kids are being adopted from foster care. Uh, in states, and, and are those numbers changing over time? And and what is that the evidence that Christians have played a role in those kinds of changes? And so it was really taking the movement and scrutinizing what had been going on to try to develop a broader theory. That's really the goal, as we were trying to develop, a, or I was trying to develop a broader theory about how 
religious faith motivates or does not motivate collective action in a way that can contribute to uh, addressing social problems. Interesting. And, and it was basically local uh, adoption agencies that you were looking at that they were working with, or was it global? Oh, so it's global. Uh, local, global foster care agencies, adopt, international adoption agencies. I mean, we were. I, I was uh, asking any and everybody who uh, who had any experience or exposure to that. Yeah. And um, just curious, what years would this have been? So I was doing my research. So the, the movement runs from early 2000s all the way to today. Uh, I was doing my research from about 2012 to 2017 when I wrote the book. And I, I still see. track those numbers, but um, that's 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 when I was doing my research. Yeah, and uh, this is actually an area of interest for me because I happened to be in uh, Romania the year Ceausescu was replaced and wow, uh, Romanian wow. ador- adoption agencies were functioning and took relief from Germany into Romania, five different orphanages in Romania uh, while I was there once on sabbatical. Got to see those um, agencies up close. Got to see how relationally isolated these kids were that were in these adoption agencies. I mean, you go to hold a kid and they would not let you go because you were holding them. I mean, it it would, I mean, brought tears to your eyes. I mean, it was really a tragic um, situation. And and so, um, you know, the issue of of caring for, for kids who, who need care and, you know, need a family uh, is very, very close to my heart. So it's a t- terrific topic, it sounds like, and and was a great way to start. But let's talk about the mechanics of sociology a little bit and what, what sociology tries to do. So let me let me do it in that order first. If you were explaining to someone who, who only knows sociology as an ology, and that's about all they know, uh, um, uh, how would you explain sociology? And then we'll fo- I'm going to follow up with some questions about how do you do your work? What makes it what makes it a, a, a science in the humanities, if you will? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I teach an intro level social problems course almost every semester. So I have this conversation a lot with my students and try to explain to them what is sociology? How would we distinguish it from something like psychology or economics or political science? And um, I stress, first of all, to me, so like in, in, as, as I understand sociology, sociology is a social science, uh, and it has its foot in the humanities because there's an evaluation of texts and content, and that kind of thing, especially people who are doing higher level theoretical work and, 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 and uh, I think uh, the sociology of history or historical sociology. But um, as I practice sociology and as I engage and I teach it, um, I center sociology more within the social sciences. And so what that means to me is it is an evidence-based approach to understand uh, how society works. And why I say society there is because sociology as a discipline distinguishes people in groups from people in isolation, right? Like, so, so psychology would be a social science that is an evidence-based, evidence-based way to understand say, the, say the influences of things like personality and cognitive development and stages of life and the influence perhaps of the social on the individual. But sociology is far more interested in when people get together, like uh, Emile Durkheim taught that social groups, society is a reality sui generis, right? Like it is of its own. It is it is uh, its own thing. It becomes its unique, uh, a unique thing that is worth studying on its own, not just as individuals aggregated, 
but as its own uh, uh, a kind of way of behaving. And so sociology is a, is a social science that aims to, at its best, uh, to be a, an evidence-based, data-driven approach to understanding how social groups act and work, uh, how they organize themselves and arrange themselves, and, and all of the things that come into contact. Now, this raises a whole series of questions, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the evidence side in a second. I want to pursue the social science part of this. And sure. one thing that strikes me is, is that in our culture, for most people, they think very individualistically. They don't think about the nature of groups, group impact, group culture. Actually, I would call it group cultures, that what we have are cultures that rub against each other in our in our, in our our world. And so uh, the nature of pluralism is, is the plural. And so, um, uh, so in thinking about how that works, um, just wrestling with um, things that people don't might not normally think about, and they certainly don't think about it, I think, in terms of, you mean there's evidence behind this? I mean, we can actually study it. And, and so talk about what it takes to do a sociological um, study. What, what goes into that? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I appreciate about sociology in, in particular is it is a, it is a really eclectic uh, discipline and that we, we pull from a variety of different, uh, uh, methods or, or, uh, approaches. So it's, it's not like economics. Economics is like a purely quantitative, the way it's practiced is purely quantitative, like discipline that, that is looking at everything from administrative data to survey data to, to, you know, experiments, psychologists, you know, use quantitative data primarily as do most political scientists. Sociology integrates really a lot of qualitative uh, data analysis that could involve interviews with people like I did with my dissertation or participant observation where you're actually going and, and observing and taking notes and and and, uh, and and going along with like what the group is doing to try to gather data with how that culture works and what meanings uh, are salient within that context and how people mean certain words and, and movements and rituals. And then you've got also the same kind of quantitative data that you would use in, as in the political sciences or, or psychology or something like that. So I use personally, uh, I use large national data sets uh, that we, we, we partner and, and pay. We, we get, get grant money to pay surveying firms like YouGov or, or whoever to fund large national surveys. Some of them follow people over uh, a certain amount of time. We call those panel studies. So like we are actually asking the same people the same questions over time to see how they change. So these Is that a longitudinal studies. study? Is that what that's sometimes called? Yeah, that would be a longitudinal panel study, right? Okay. So like we are we're doing that. So we're looking at surveys. We would also, though, look at administrative data. And I run with my graduate students, I run survey experiments to see how uh, exposing uh, a group to a certain treatment or a reading or a condition will actually change their minds or perspectives or get a different response based on, I think, social cues. So I, we, we are eclectic in that way. So, so just to, just to simplify, um, the quantitative stuff is like the survey that would, that would go out and you just fill it out with, with answers to questions. And there are usually options that are given to you and, and it's called uh, quantitative because you're, you're surveying a vast amount of people, but you're not, you're not digging in. All that you get is the answer that you put provide in the in the survey. That's A right. qualitative survey actually involves um, some interviewing and some some um, some in depth follow up. They're harder to do 
and right. and much more uh, uh, much more complex in some ways to analyze because this isn't just raw numbers on an answer. You're you're uh, <laughs> you know you're having to fill in what what they're telling you, et cetera. And you put those together into a formal study to try and wrestle with uh, whatever it is you're looking about, looking at and what those answers are revealing. Is that that's a really quick, quick and dirty summary. And then if you do it longitudinally, you're doing that over time. So you're looking at someone at the beginning right. through a period of time until whatever you wrap it up and, and, and et cetera. And sometimes those longitudinal studies can go for decades, right? Right. And those are, I mean, and those are expensive studies and those are labor intensive, but they are so rich in terms of the payoff, right? Like what they can actually tell us about uh, how people's lives change and the kinds of situations and circumstances that lead to those changes. I mean, the data that we get from those is super valuable. But the best kind of, of sociology, in my opinion, and this is what I, I aim for in my own research, is 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 a combination of qualitative and quantitative. It, it, it quantitative because it provides that generalizability, right? Like that those large numbers, the representative samples that I can draw conclusions from, but also it provides that depth that you were talking about, richness of qualitative data that allows follow-up questions to really dig into what did you mean there? And you know, elaborate on that and talk to me about your story and and kind of and 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 it allows what we call triangulation. Uh, where we can triangulate that data to really zone or zero in on on exactly the answer we're we're feeling like it's data are telling us. So generally speaking, when you do this, do you do your uh, quantitative stuff first to kind of surface what you want to go after, and then your qualitative after, or do they run side by side, or does it depend? Well, that's a good question. Oftentimes, they end up running side by side. I mean, I think in a perfect world, um, um, in a in a perfect world, uh, I think you would do. Uh, your qualitative work, uh, I think, first, uh, so that you can figure out what questions you're supposed to be asking in your quantitative data, right? Like, here is oftentimes your your quantitative data, like your survey questions, you only get one shot at those. I mean, you're paying a lot of money to send this right. out and hopefully ask these questions of a lot of people. They're very expensive if they're done well. But qualitative work allows you to 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 understand, okay, what are the important questions here? And, and what should I be asking? And, and so things that I it helps you develop theories that you'd actually like to test with that quantitative data uh, to be able to, I think, come up with answers that are satisfying and, uh, I think, you know, backed by the evidence. Yeah, I've been involved because of my work with chosen people in a variety of surveys that, um, one, first design the questions and then go through on a quantitative level uh, on, you know, how people feel about Israel and the Middle East and some of those kinds of questions. Uh, what do they think about Jewish people and Muslims and Palestinians and Arabs? Um, wow. and, and then the one thing we haven't been able to do with that because because of the time and expense involved is to actually sit down and face-to-face -face interview in depth, you know, right. the group of people that we're dealing with. So we're all, we're only on the on the quantitative side of things and doing the work that we've done. But we're actually working on here at the at the center planning a study on doubt uh, for young students in non-Christian university uh, context wow. in which we hope to combine qualitative and quantitative analysis to figure out what generates the doubts and also, more importantly, how ministries that come alongside students attempt to minister to those doubts and what's effective and what isn't. Right. Uh, Right, and, and to sort through that that layer of uh, of reflection in a way to help people think through 
you know, when are they doing something that's beneficial and when they might be spinning their wheels. Right. Right. And I think this is is actually a a great, uh, I think, segue into, uh, I think, some important distinctions between sociology as a method, which I think it sounds like you guys are engaging in, I think, what is a very familiar sociological analysis and approach to understanding those issues that you're talking about, whether it's prejudice against uh, 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 Jewish people or it's doubt and the ways those things are, are generated among young people versus what a lot of people, I think, mistakenly consider sociology, which is some kind of like, a, I think, a, um, unfortunately can be like a, a discipline that kind of, you know, uh, masquerades as social science, but is really more kind of like ideologically driven activism yep. towards a certain goal. Um, and I get that question a lot and I try to dispel it whenever I can, that it doesn't have to be that it, it's, 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 that is, that is a way a lot of people who self-select into sociology kind of take their skill set. Uh, but that is not, I think that where the discipline has to be necessarily or where certain practitioners would have to. End up. Yeah. I actually think that's a pretty important point because um, I, I think that a lot of people think that if you're in the social sciences or if you're even in the humanities in a larger kind of way, that there are, there certainly can be ideological drivers, but there don't have to be ideological drivers in that in that kind of a sense. And you can deal with what it is that you find in the material uh, that you're that you're wrestling with. And what I mean by that is uh, that you can you can you can take a look at the factors that that people themselves are actually dealing with. And I mean, we all come with perspectives. I'm not, I'm not trying to shed that, but. uh, Right, right, exactly. Yeah. But, but I am trying to say that there is a way to do the work that actually is trying to make a good faith effort to understand what's going on. Yes, exactly. Right. And I think, uh, so, uh, you know, Peter Berger, I'm sure you're familiar with Peter yes. Berger's work in the sacred canopy, but also he wrote a, uh, I think a really foundational book that was, that was, uh, foundational for me getting into sociology as a discipline that I'd like to pursue. And this is invitation to sociology. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is in really early on in the book is that it, you know, the methods of sociology are really agnostic in, in terms of, uh, and I don't, I don't mean agnostic in a spiritual sense. I just mean, ideologically, they could be used for, or anything, because it really is just an, an evidence, data-driven way to understand social groups and the intersection of history and identity and, you know, your own kind of social experience, rather than something that has to be driven by some kind of political or ideological uh, viewpoint or another, right? We all come with priors, but it doesn't right. have to be so uh, infected with that. And in fact, one of the challenges doing good sociology is figuring out how to actually word your surveys so that they are right. they don't they don't skew the results by the way you ask the question, that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. 
Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So, um, so, so you did this one on, on orphanages. What, have, what, what other kinds of sociological work have you done? Uh, so my second book was, uh, and actually I've, I've done a lot of work on this, which was which uh, on uh, people of faith and their experiences with pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was uh, my book, Addicted to Lust. Uh, what what I do is it's qualitative and quantitative, and and what I do is we found that, and this is my co-authors and I, and and over time we found that pornography tends to be associated, pornography use tends to be associated in, in all of the expected ways with things like unhappiness and, and marital struggles and relationship struggles, right? So people who look at pornography more are more likely to say their marriage is unhappy, more likely to say that they themselves are unhappy. Hmm. Now, it's it's always difficult to disintangle what causes what there, right? Like, so is is it is somebody unhappy and therefore they look at pornography or did the pornography make them unhappy? Is, is somebody in, a, in an unhappy marriage so they run to pornography, or did the pornography make their marriage unhappy? Uh, in reality, it's probably some of both. But one of the things that we found uh, is that we found that whatever the negative consequences of pornography use, it seems to influence people of faith more. Um, it, it, it's way worse. Uh, like their marriages are worse off. Their personal happiness is worse off. Worse off when they're looking at pornography. And so one of the things that I was talking about in addicted lust. And this is a theory of moral incongruence that we've developed with clinical psychologists. And I'm, I'm very eclectic in who I work with. So I work mm-hmm. I with a lot of clinical psychologists and political scientists. But one of the things we wrote about and that I wrote about in this book was the connection between uh, our own culture within, say, evangelical culture um, and our inability to talk about, say, pornography use in a way that is constructive and healthy, either as couples or within the church. And how that contributes to shame and isolation uh, and, and, and really a, a, a way that elevates pornography use to, to such a heinous and unforgivable sin that we, we have a difficult time breaking out of that pattern in our lives, either in our romantic relationships or in our personal struggles. And so one of the things I'm, I'm talking or I was talking about in that book, it was published in, in 2019, um, one of the things I was talking about is, is – uh, what would be a better way forward for the church in light of the fact that, um, you know, evangelical Christians are the least likely to look at pornography, but they're the most likely to say that they feel addicted to pornography, that they feel overwhelmed or overcome or, or, or depressed because of pornography or that they hide their pornography from others. Uh, that shouldn't be right. Like that should be, a, you know, a, a, according to our own kind of expectations of how the church is supposed to work in relationships with work. We should be uh, willing to talk open and 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 uh, uh, there for one another in that regard. So that was uh, addicted to lust. Subsequently, uh, most of my work has been on um, uh, religion and politics. So the, the study of Christian nationalism uh, and and what that looks like and how to how to define it. What is what is it and how do I, is is there a good way to measure that kind of thing and what are its consequences for our political attitudes and behaviors? And so that's been the last five years of my work is focused on that. Okay. So let's, t- let's take these one after another. Um, it's interesting that you did this analysis on pornography yeah. and then turned around and began to wrestle with um, what the solutions might be, which raises an interesting question uh, for me about sociology and how it works. Because I think for a lot of people, if they do know something about sociology, they, th- they tend to say, well, they're just analyzing 
the nature and causes of where we are. And the issue of how do you deal with this, uh, I guess this is the way to ask the question, is the question how you deal with what you find a part of sociology or is that kind of the addendum that comes out of it where you're trying to get reflective on what it is that you're seeing? Yeah, um, I think for me, it's 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 a necessary part of of what what am I supposed to do with this? And it's one of the things that I think makes social science different from physics or geology is is that the the geologist or the physicist may have some ethical or moral kind of like import to what they do if they're developing weapons or something that's going to harm people or whatever. But uh, as a social scientist, I'm I'm interviewing people who are struggling and crying before me to talk about their own struggles. I feel like it is imperative for me to to say what are some what are some tools what are some conclusions that we can draw from the data that would actually benefit human flourishing in a way that is uh, conducive to the goals I think they are after right and so uh, each conclusion at the very least is wrestling with where would people who are interested in this topic where would they go from here based on the data uh, and this is I think this is something that that Max Weber so Max Weber's uh, you know eminent sociologist talked about you know we have the the term, the Protestant ethic, right? Like this idea like comes from Weber, but he wrote a lot about ethics and research and objectivity. Uh, and one of the things that he concluded was, was that uh, science and the social sciences in particular um, cannot determine what is moral, right? Because that's a, that's a, that's a question for, I think our priors, our ethics, our, our theology, our philosophy, but it can inform our morals in that, in, 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 in what we feel are, are the best ways forward to attain those those moral goals. So, for example, in, in the book Addicted to Lust, as a sociologist, um, as, as a sociologist, I, I, I don't feel like, from a social science perspective, it's it's uh, necessary for me to say pornography is evil, right? But I but I but I can say as a social as a sociologist, um, pornography seems to be associated with a lot of harm, and particularly for this group of people who really want to avoid it. So, what would be some really practical ways forward best on the, based on the evidence uh, of how, say, people get out of pornography, of habitual pornography. So you see, in that, in that regard, I'm using the social science and the evidence to say, for people who want to get out of this habit in their life, this pattern, behavior, what are some ways that have been uh, demonstrated beneficial and conducive to that? And what are some ways that are not beneficial to that you see how i'm like it it's, mm-hmm. it's I'm not making a moral claim but i'm using the science to kind of inform that moral pursuit so you used a phrase earlier that i think is also important in this conversation in this kind of conversation and that's the phrase human flourishing and yeah. uh and you're you're really you're studying to see both what is and i guess beginning to raise questions about how it could be better um uh, and and that seems to me to be some, that seems to be an area where, if I can say it this way, uh, faith and and social science could work together um, to to raise and wrestle with those kinds of questions. Right. Absolutely. In, in in the same way that faith and the medical sciences can should should work together. Right. Like we exactly as, as a medical professional, I should. I should absolutely 100% be committed to whatever the data tell me about what is the best way to cure uh, a, a virus or cancer or or to solve an epidemic or or, or that kind of thing uh, to accomplish the kinds of things that that we feel like are beneficial for all 
human beings. And in the social sciences, I mean, that really is an approach. And, and I teach a, every semester, I teach a large social problems course. And in that social problems course, I, I tell students from the very beginning that this is not going to be like an ideology course or an activist course. This is a course on what, do, what does the data tell us uh, are the reason behind we have the reproduction of, say, poverty, uh, generational poverty in this country, or, or generational racial inequality, or those kinds of things. What are the sources of that? And if we would all conclude that those things are problems that we want to solve, what does the evidence tell us about the best solution forward? Rather than saying, hey, this is, you know, uh, the, the solution is, I've already decided the solution is this, and let me just tell you uh, that. It's, it's, you know, I really am committed, personally, I, I want to be a social, science, that social scientist that is guided by where the evidence leads, uh, and in a professional capacity, offer solutions to a world that says, how do we learn about this? A little bit yeah, I, I find one of the things that, the, and the reason I think sociology is so, one, fascinating and two, and two valuable, is because it probes these corporate structures in ways that, generally speaking, people don't pay attention to. They react to, right. but they may not pay attention to it. And that's, those are two different things. Um, and, and so sometimes I find myself... Um, you know, I, I sometimes get asked the question about about the nature of certain structures and whether they're operating in our society in certain ways. I mean, you know this. I mean, you get into discussions about whether something is systemic or not, that kind right. of thing. And um, and the only way to know that, it seems to me, is to actually take a pretty close cross-sectional look at the space and see what's going on. Right. Right. And that requires, but that, and so this is where I think the science part of this comes in. Um, because we are human beings and all of us have biases and blind spots, um, we, we, it, it is the reason that we, we invite accountability when we're a part of a translation committee or a Bible. Yeah. Right? Like, so if I'm a part of a translation committee, I, I do that because uh, I need different perspectives and I need to be challenged in my own biases, my own leanings, and I need accountability in that way. And science is supposed to be, when it's done right, is supposed to offer that through the process of, say, peer review and criticism and, and challenge and data and evidence and showing your evidence. And then I'll, I'll get to uh, one of the reasons I like the Net Bible so much in a second is, is because we want to we want to show the process by which we gathered this information and we made choices about what we think is true. And we did that within a context of accountability so that we feel like um, this is moving us forward now in a conversation about what can be known. You know, like, I mean, I think these, these are really important. And, and, and so society and decisions that we make about policy and about how society works need to be, I think, developed within that same context, rather with just kind of a priori assumptions, they need to be uh, guided by uh, what the best evidence su suggests is good practice and effective. Uh, and consequential. And, and so uh, about the Net Bible. So this is one of the things I, I tell everybody, people ask me all the time, and I've been writing uh, a lot about Bible translations, and I think that's really important. And I get asked often, what's the best Bible translation? And, I, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to steer people away from what I feel like are kind of uh, historic kind of like slogans or ad campaign words like uh, literal or, or, or things like, uh, Oh, I guess, yeah, literal or, or you know. Paraphrastic. Uh, yeah, what is it? Paraphrastic. Paraphrastic. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah. And, 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 and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push people towards greater 
transparency and accountability. Like those are words that I would like to, uh, to, to, to be higher in our lexicon for when we talk about like what Bibles are good Bibles to read. One of the things I really value about the Net Bible is because I, I think it gets as close as, as as possible to what we would consider kind of like the open science understanding of like how we how we how we come across how we come about like our decisions. Like there's accountability there. There is a uh, transparency there and how decisions were made. Whether or not I think you know Romans three twenty three is 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 translated in that objective or subjective genitive, like whether it, whether right. they got it right. At least they explained it, right? Like at least I know how they went about. The op- you know what the options are and what the contextual choice is. Well, and so that and that I think is is a picture, right? Of, if anybody who appreciates that about the net Bible should appreciate what I'm talking about with with a social science perspective, is that we. We are transparent about the methods that we used, and we're accountable to our peers and to everybody else to say, this is how we drew our conclusions. Show me the bias, right? And, and if there is no bias, then we, 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 which, we, which is our goal, we, we use that to be able to draw conclusions about what the, what the data say. Okay, so we got time for your third kind of, you kind of giving us three studies here, uh, the Christian nationalism stuff. Um, uh, what? What uh, I guess the first question is: What drove you to go uh, study this particular topic? Um, in all, in all, honestly, we we backed up into this subject as as something that we were we were playing with the data uh, back in like 2013. We were looking at several surveys and and surveys that asked questions about how Americans thought about um, whether or not America should be considered whether the government should declare us a Christian nation, whether like we should institutionalize our kind of Christian identity as a nation. And we looked at how that was corresponding to various attitudes. And we found that, wow, this is, this really tracks with a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of what we would consider pretty reactionary or far right political attitudes. I mean, these were not just kind of like, I value, uh, I value uh, faith or religion, or I value pro-life kind of things, even though those, those things are correlated um, we have shown within the last, I think, 10 years of studying this thing that, that Christian nationalism as an ideology um, is associated with things like authoritarian uh, uh, control, support for authoritarian control. For, for example, any means necessary policing, that the police should be able to use any means necessary to, to enforce law and order or things like uh, torture. Uh, uh, voter suppression, <laughs> like th- things that we would uh, hopefully agree that you know what those things do not contribute to a uh, like a, a thriving, uh, stable liberal democracy. Uh, and, and subsequently, we collected a lot of data pro- post say January six. Uh, so Christian nationalist ideology tracked very closely with say like absolving um, anybody there of any blame for for anything. They're saying it was it was a good thing that that, uh, that that actually it was like that was something positive that we ought to see more of. So all of these all of these things. So. What we're ultimately getting at is that um, I, I think the evidence would suggest that um, this isn't this isn't about, and we've never like been against, never, uh, never been against uh, Christians voting their values and living out their faith in the public sphere. I think that is something that is not only a good thing, but but inevitable, right? Like like we could like we could even ask people to suspend their faith at the door in politics. Like all of those things are so uh, closely connected. But it, it becomes a more complicated question when we're talking about whether or not we institutionalize Christian privilege in the public sector so that we actually, say, disenfranchise people who are not Christians, or that we actually t- 
take away privileges or so that we actually create a hierarchy in which Christians are at the top systematically and, and everybody else are at the bottom. And you actually have several, you actually have several books now that are arguing for this very thing, right? So like within the past six months, there have been two books written, naming Christian, using Christian nationalism as a name, saying that essentially we ought to create a situation, a new context in which only Christians would be able to hold public office, that only Christians uh, would be able to, to have a leading role in determining the kind of nation that we should be. Now, uh, you know, I'm not sure who's listening to this podcast, but I feel like that is that is uh, me personally and in, in the way I consider my own Christian values. I feel like that's uh, as an American, I feel like that's uh, antithetical to the Constitution, but it is also unchristian in the sense that it would require coercion um, in, a, in, a, in a way that I feel like is 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 unhelpful. So we've been trying to in our writing about Christian nationalism, analyze the data to to draw out what do the data tell us about where this kind of belief uh, and uh, could lead us, and what are some ways that we need to approach this in a healthy way so that we can actually have conversations who are people of faith, interested in voting their values, and uh, a growing percentage of the population who is not interested in that, and, and how these two work together to solve problems. Interesting. Well, man, that, that sounds like it's almost a topic in and of itself. And, <laughs> it's a whole uh, can of worms, I know. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it isn't like we haven't been there in these conversations. But right. uh, uh, Sam, I just want to thank you for taking the time to kind of walk us through this and give us some samples of what it looks like and how sociology goes about what it does. This is very, very valuable. I know that we are constantly at the center as we work in these spaces where um, where faith and 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 pluralism and and uh, and options are on the table. We're right. constantly wrestling with and utilizing uh, material and statistics that really have emerged out of the out of the sociological space. It's an important discipline for us. I mean, anyone who's heard the name Barna or Pew or whatever, right. you know, knows. Uh, how uh, Lifeways, another one, uh, knows how this kind of data um, and the work that it takes to get there, um, right. which some people don't appreciate, uh, how much work it takes to actually, you know, surface this kind of material and how it, it does help us look at, at particularly corporate spaces in ways that otherwise we might we might miss. So, right. um, so it's just, I, I guess that's a nice way of, of thanking you for one, your time and two, your commitment to a discipline that actually does, uh, I think, serve us uh, when done well. It serves us very well and helps us out in terms of, uh, of the way we see the world around us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, and, and, and I will say, like, I think that uh, it's, a, it's a large discipline and people can kind of take disciplines in different directions but i think sociology at its best can when done right like you said i think can offer something uh that benefits the church and benefits uh all of us hopefully well thank you for being with us we really appreciate it and we thank you for joining us at the table hope you'll join us again soon if you want to see other podcasts take a look at voice.dts.edu slash table podcast and we hope you'll join us again soon for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.